This is In Conversation from Apple News Today. I'm Shamita Basu. This week, we sat down with the subject of a recent profile in Sports Illustrated, Olympic athlete Lolo Jones. Lolo Jones is a lot of things. She's a track and field star, a bobsledder, a reality TV personality. She's one of very few athletes who's competed in both the summer and winter Olympic Games. She won't be in Tokyo this year. She's got her eyes set on qualifying for the 2022 bobsled team. That would mean returning to Beijing, the site of her very first Olympic Games in 2008. She was the favorite to take home the gold that year, but instead she suffered a crushing loss in the 100-meter hurdles. As she says, that loss propelled her to keep moving and keep redefining success for herself. The Sports Illustrated profile is called Lolo Jones's Eternal Reinvention. It was written by Julie Kliegman. You can read and listen to it on Apple News+. Plus. Kliegman writes about how Jones has been able to pivot and find success in many different and unlikely fields. But Kliegman also says Jones's time in the spotlight had its drawbacks. She suffered a lot of scrutiny in the media, often intense, a lot of it negative. In my conversation with Lolo Jones, we started by talking about her experience in 2008. I thought maybe we could go back to your first Olympics and start there. Oh, nice. I'm going to take the summary right from your Twitter bio because I liked it and I thought it was really succinct. You wrote, quote, in 2008, I was one hurdle away from Olympic gold. I hit a hurdle that changed it all. Yeah. What happened that year, Lolo? I went to my first Olympic Games and I kind of had a whirlwind year. I went from no one even knowing who I was, not pegged to make the Olympic team, to becoming not only an Olympic athlete, but the fastest in the world and the spotlight on me. And so I go to Beijing. Everything is going right on track. I'm having personal bests in the semifinals. I'm running really smoothly. People are like, oh my gosh, she's on pace to break the Olympic record. So I'm in the race and I was having a good race. Like I knew I was winning the race and the hurdles just started coming up incredibly fast. Mm. And then I hit a hurdle and I don't hit a lot of hurdles. Like up to that point, I probably had hit a total of three hurdles in the course of my career. And we're talking about middle school, high school, college. In the moment I was just, okay, like, let's just try to find a way to finish this race. See if we can still squeak out a bronze medal. And when I crossed the finish line, that's when I realized how bad the damage was done. And I looked up and I saw that I got seventh and I was utterly devastated. I mean, this is everything you work for, for years. Mm -hmm. And I just collapsed to the track And I was holding back tears and just a wave of frustration. And I pounded the track. And then I just felt like God's peace in me and just say, but you're here. And four years ago, you were sitting at home watching the Olympics and you were frustrated because you weren't at the Olympics and now you're here. The biggest failure in my life turning into one of the most peaceful moments. And Mm. I used that failure for many years. I, I used it to go on to make other teams, to break records. And the main thing is not letting bitterness seep in. You know, it's incredible. Your your reaction to that loss in 2008, and I mean your immediate reaction to it, which was documented, is now used as an example in media training sessions for Olympic athletes, right? In, in terms of how to lose graciously. Correct. Yeah. And I I didn't even know that until I was actually doing media training for another Olympics and they showed that race. I was like, oh, this is so awkward. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. A 
Oh, I didn't really. You learned me. it on the spot like that. <laughs> Other Olympians have told me that too. They're like, we watched your post-race interview. So that meant a lot to have other athletes tell me that. It's funny because if you compare that to like, I've been on reality TV shows and people were like, you're such a, a classless lose, loser. And then it's like, yeah, but then why is Olympics showing my <laughs> uh, videos on how to lose? Um, you have a book out among many things that you're busy with. It's called Over It, How to Face Life's Hurdles with Grit, Hustle, and Grace. You want to tell us about the book? Yeah. So I started writing it during the pandemic. You know, I was training for my last Olympics and then I didn't know if they were going to get canceled or shut down. And then I was just stuck in my house. I didn't see another human being for over a month. And so, Mm. yeah, I had a lot of time on my hands and I thought it was a good time to kind of dive back into, you know, my Olympic experiences and, what I've learned over my biggest failures and how that has helped put me on a path to break history and records. And um, I'm really excited about it. It talks about my childhood where I grew up in poverty. You know, my dad was in and out of prison. My mom was raising five kids. We were homeless at one point. And then the little things like not even having a car to get to school and like how that propelled me to become a runner and then go on to make the Olympic team. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you've been very open about your mental health after 2008 and throughout. I mean, can you talk a little bit about just the incredible emotional whiplash of before the competition, then making it to 2008 and and truly everything that comes after it? Because I think so much of what we talk about with athletes is the build up to the competition. Mm -hmm. And there's so much that comes after, (laughs) whether you've lost or won. My Olympic journeys have experienced different kind of attacks on me mentally. So in 2008, I actually, afterwards, I struggled with PTSD because I kept replaying the moment in my head. Even though I had peace about, okay, this happened, I processed it, I still would relive the moment. And I I didn't think athletes could get PTSD. I thought only soldiers in the battlefield could get it. I didn't know anyone could get it from any traumatic event that's happened to them. For me, I was like, I'm just an athlete. That's silly. But, you know, I lost the Olympics in front of millions of people. So I had people stopping me in the grocery store. I had people, you know, all over, like, sending me mail and, like, reaching out to me. And so I would just replay that event, like, what I should have done differently. Oh, if I just would have, like, did this instead of that, you know? And so hindsight for people is like, you can get PTSD from any traumatic event. Don't feel like you're too tough to where it doesn't affect you. Mm. And then in the London Olympics, I got it completely different. I got attacked in the press and also from some of my teammates. And so I was dealing with online bullying or trolls or just those kind of attacks. Social media was just getting started in 2008. So people weren't that rude on there. Like Twitter had just started. Well, now in London 2012, you had Instagram and Twitter and people were very comfortable with saying more rude things. So that affected my mental state in a completely different mannerism. Mm. I mean, so much of this mental health conversation ties into the media. So how can we rethink this relationship between athletes and the media? What's best for the athletes? It's really tough because in some sporting events, we really rely heavily on the media to help us like track and field without the media is dead. So I try to be as open as I can with the media because they're helping promote our track meet. But in the same essence, I mean, I've had stories written about me two days before I competed in the Olympics where I was completely ripped apart. Mm. I understand that sensationalizing headlines get more clicks, but that would be what I would just hope that the media changes is the just aggressive headlines. 
You could say something and it's just like they'll spin it away just to get readers to read it. And it's just very frustrating because I'll give an example. I did a show with Kevin Hart. He has a thing where he goes in the cold tub with an athlete and interviews the athlete. And so we were just making jokes about like how I've decided to wait until I'm married to have sex. And I made a joke. I said, yeah, I kind of regret that because now no one wants to date me. Well, then headlines everywhere were like, Lolo made a mistake. Like they made it spin it in a bad way. Mm. And it was totally me and Kevin Hart just joking around like in a very nice way about it. And they made it seem like I totally regretted my rescission, which I don't at all. And so it's just clickbait it's what you know they want to do for headlines to get readers to click and then it just spins everything that the person is saying yeah and i mean this is a hallmark of celebrity which is not necessarily what athletes sign up for right Mm -hmm. so how can athletes reclaim their own narratives if i had the key to that (laughs) that would save me a lot of uh, (laughs) stress they can write a book perhaps write a memoir Exactly. Then that's what it comes down to. The number one question I'm beginning is why did I write this book? And I wrote this book to provide inspiration. And I also wrote it because I've had so much bad press and so much negativity. It's starting to overwhelm me. So I was like, you know what? You guys want to really know what happened? Here's what really happened. And here's the actual tea from the person that lived in these shoes, the person that hit the hurdle. And this is what went on behind the closed doors. So now people will have that perspective. And, you know, you can reclaim your power as well by social media. That's why I'm very active on my social media. But that also opens you up to online trolls as well. So I feel like sometimes it doesn't matter. Even if you are expressing your truth, there's just going to be someone on there that is having a bad day that just wants to say something rudely. So mm. you were recently profiled in Sports Illustrated by Julie Kliegman. And the piece was called Lolo Jones's Eternal Reinvention. Mm. And you posted a link to it on Facebook. And you said that you never read stuff about yourself, but you read this one. Can you explain your reaction to her piece? Yeah. So at first I actually had my friend read the article because I was just like, just let me know if it's bad, because if it's bad, I'm not going to read it and I'm not going to talk about it because I'm so used to just getting bad press at this point. I'm kind of shell shocked. And so she's like, no, it's good. You should check it out. And so when I read it, then I was able to, I guess, really realize I'm always working a lot, like training for one Olympics is hard, but I went on to train for two Olympics at the same time. Like I'm always like nonstop working. Like I I barely have any free time. And in the article, she said something about like, you know, because I grew up poor that she's just wondering if I work so hard to just make sure I never return to that state. And I thought it was a valid point because I am very afraid that, you know, I'll go back to a life of poverty because I was just so overwhelmed in that growing up. You know, I was shoplifting in elementary and I was shoplifting TV dinners so that I would have enough food to eat. So we would go to food banks a lot, food pantries to pick up free food. We were on welfare. And so like the normal track season for a professional hurdler, you run about 20 or 30 races. One year I ran 60 races so that I could make sure I had enough money. So yeah, so that stood out for me. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I need to like learn to have more of a balance, you know? Yes. I think balance is sort of the the word of the moment, right? But at the end of the day, like real financial concerns can't be ignored. And I think a lot of people don't realize, they think that sports is really lucrative, right? 
Yeah, well, especially for Olympic athletes. And that's one of the chapters I write about in my book, how Olympians are ridiculously poor and that 50% of U.S. athletes that will go on to the Olympics make under $15,000 a year with all their combined income resources. So I really take a huge dive into Olympics payment and how the Olympics is a multi-billion dollar, basically, corporation that essentially comes off as a charity, but they're not because they don't really give as much money back to the athletes and the talent that is producing these Olympic Games. And so needless to say, I'll probably never get a job at the International Olympic Committee. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let's talk about your stints on reality TV. Yeah. So I've done a ton of stints on reality TV shows. Lately, it's been perceived as, oh, she's like wanting attention. And and in my book, I'm like, if you go back and you look at every reality show I've signed up for, either I was hurt and injured and I couldn't compete that year. So I was literally essentially robbed of a whole year of income or a contract was up. Dancing with the Stars in 2014, my shoe deal was up. So I went on that show just to make sure that I would have enough money to train for another Olympic cycle. Celebrity Big Brother, I was injured and two contracts were up that year. Then you had NTV The Challenge, the pandemic hit. I wasn't able to run one track meet and earned $1 on the track. All of my money essentially was ripped away. Every athlete I know was not able to make $1 when the pandemic hit. And it's not like we can file for unemployment like most people because we have such a rare job. So so I was like, okay, let me just go on that show. And so, you know, I'm not married. I don't have a husband. You know, I pay all of my bills and I actually take care of my family sometimes. So I have to be the financial breadwinner. And if I have to go on a crummy reality TV show so that I can make another Olympic push, I'm all for mm-hmm. it. Are there other things that you're also interested in doing that relate to sort of your financial goals in, in being able to fuel your career? The problem is like, let's say, you know, I have an economics degree. Let's say I wanted to go get a job in that field. Most of the time it would be a nine to five job where I'd be sitting behind a desk and would take up many, many hours. And then that would not allow me the ability to train. Sure. Whereas if you do like a reality show, you're only on the show for two weeks to a month, which usually is filmed in my off season. So I can go film that show and then I can go back to just training full time. The biggest leap I ever made as an athlete was when I was able to quit. I had two part-time jobs and I was okay. Like I was getting fifth through eighth place in every race, but it wasn't until I started to make enough money running and quit those jobs. That's when I was really able to go from an okay hurdler to the best in the world because now my focus was only on running. Mm. And so reality TV shows, they're not the best, but you know, I can do them in my off season and then I can get back to my main focus, which is just competing as an athlete. Yeah. Yeah. Another major reinvention point for you was when you joined the U.S. bobsledding team in 2012. Why did you make this decision to take on a whole new sport? Well, even before the London Olympics, I had spine surgery and I thought my career was over and they found a birth defect in me. And so a year out, I had to basically go back from learning to walk to, you know, running to becoming the best hurdle in the world. And everybody's like, there's no way she's going to make this Olympic team. Absolutely no way after spine surgery. I was one of the last people to enter into the Olympic trials. I was able to get the last spot to qualify for the Olympic team. So I got third and then I go over to the London Olympics and and fight through the rounds. And then I get fourth at the London Olympics. And I was really proud of getting fourth because I was like, man, like a year ago, I had spine surgery and I could barely walk. And I was so happy. And then as soon as I left the track, the media destroyed me. 
teammates, everyone was just like, there's so much attention on her. The media was like calling me a flop. My at mentions on Twitter were like, she's a failure. She just give up all her sponsorships. And basically fourth place wasn't good enough for everybody after everything I overcame. And so I was so frustrated by that. I just went home and I sat on my couch and for a month I didn't leave my house and I just watched TV and I was absolutely 100% depressed and I knew I wanted to compete still but I just didn't want to run again like I didn't want to go back to the sport of track and field because I just felt like it kept ripping my heart out mm. and so you know I grew up watching the movie Cool Runnings and so I remembered that yeah, and sure. I you know bobsled is such an under the radar sport there's not a lot of viewership on it and so I felt like I could go to bobsled and kind of hide out and just compete as an athlete there would be no pressure there would be no spotlight and essentially that's what I was able to do mm. for a little bit yeah One thing that I keep hearing about when we talk about Olympic athletes who are in their late 30s and are deemed at the end of their career, right? And it's such an unusual thing to to be expected to shift careers at that early age. What is it like for you to sort of be at this point where you're hoping to head to 2022? And what are you eyeing next? Well, I'm just excited because... I am an older athlete and I think that that provides a lot of inspiration because the Olympics is great because every Olympics they usher in these new younger athletes and it's so inspiring and they bring that new energy to the Olympics. But man, to see an older athlete still doing it after all these years, I mean, I wake up and I'm like, man, do I already have arthritis? (laughs) So (laughs) how am I feeling uh, today? How's my body doing today? Yeah, you know, just like Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, really inspiring to just still be in the game and still be able to compete with these younger athletes. But what gave me the most energy about staying in this game is the Summer and Winter Olympics have never been held in the same place ever. And so my first Olympics were in Beijing and the Winter Olympics in 2022 are going to be in Beijing. So I would have the rare opportunity if I make the team to go back and redeem myself from losing Olympic gold. And I just am so excited by that, that it just shook off all the age. I feel like I'm in my 20s now because I'm, <laughs> I'm ready to cross this finish uh-huh. line. I'm ready to redeem myself and I'm ready to inspire a world that, you know, one failure is not going to break you. Mm. You know, this is going to be such a different year for the athletes in Tokyo. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the experience of running in front of fans and what's going to be different, you think, mentally when there's no one in the stands this year. These games are going to be really hard on athletes because they have to navigate such tough COVID protocols. They won't have fans cheering them on. And not only that, they won't have their friends and family to support them there in the venues. And so they're dealing with a lot of different changes. I think some sports will fare better than others because some sports don't always sell out crowds. Like I've been to many track meets where the stadium is half empty or there's only a few people in the stands and you're having to get that energy up and still perform regardless. I think Olympic trials for a lot of the athletes were a taste of that because many of the Olympic trials were not sold out and some had just a handful of fans. So I think that they know that the stakes, it's the Olympics, it's the highest competition for many of them. So I think that they'll be able to push that all out. I think when it's going to get hard is 
after they run their races and they win the medals or they don't win their medals and they need their support system to just help talk them through that. That's going to be really tough, you know, not being able to hug your family, whether it's for a victory hug or whether it's for a hug to just wipe away the tears Mm -hmm. after a frustrating competition. I just hope that people are more positive in their at mentions to these athletes instead of using it as ways to attack if the person doesn't have a good performance or if there's something quirky that happens that they would just realize that these athletes are really navigating tough waters as it is. There will be more losers than winners. That's just the way it goes. As a three-time Olympian who has seen plenty of highs and lows, what is your advice to athletes on how to be gracious with themselves no matter what happens? You know, everybody says it's just be proud that you're an Olympian, but I would say be proud of your effort because at the end of the day, I know that no matter if I never medal in any Olympics, I did everything in my power to medal. I did the extra abs. I did the workouts. I ate really healthy. I focused as much as I could on improving every single day. And so when they go out there and compete and they put their heart on the line, whether they come up short or whether they get a a medal, that they should be incredibly proud of their effort because that's at the end of the day, which will bring them tremendous amount of peace. Lolo Jones, it's been so nice talking with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, and it was lovely to be here. Lolo Jones is co-hosting Peacock's On Her Turf at the Olympics. It's the first NBC Olympics show dedicated to covering women's sports. You can watch it on Peacock starting this weekend. Julie Kliegman's profile of Lolo Jones for Sports Illustrated is available for Apple News Plus subscribers iPhone users can subscribe in the Apple News app. 